Today I want to share an amazing podcast with you guys. I know you'll love it as much as I do. My friend Matt has been so good to me, and I'm so glad to have met him. Carolina Crimes is the name of his podcast, along with his co-host, Danielle. The two have teamed up to examine some of the most heinous and shocking crimes ever committed in the Palmetto State. As I said before, you're going to love them. So here it is, a bonus episode just for you guys. Enjoy! Are you considering a move in 2022? Then this message is for you. Meet George Simmons from EXP Realty. He is the top agent on one of the top real estate teams serving Lake Murray and the surrounding counties here in South Carolina. After serving 20 years in the military and 10 years in law enforcement, George continues to serve the Lake Murray community by providing superior real estate representation. Call today for your free home valuation at 803 429 3337 or visit online at buy or sell lakemurrayhomes.com. We look forward to serving you. Are you looking for an extremely fun and stylish up-to-date salon? Then the color bar is the place for you. Our slogan is too glam to give a damn. The color bar knows their colors and can slay anything. Located in Chapin, South Carolina, near the heart of Lake Murray, Our stylists stay up to date on all styles, cuts, and colors. Call for your free consultation at 803-932-HAIR. That's 803-932-HAIR. We can't wait to meet you. For over 350 years, the state of South Carolina has been the setting for some of the most horrendous crimes ever committed. Some have gained global notoriety, some have been forgotten, and others have been swept under the rug completely. Now, a state law enforcement operative and a local broadcasting personality have teamed up to examine these heinous acts in detail and have added a fresh perspective of their own. You're listening to Carolina Crimes. Welcome to this week's Carolina Crimes. This is going to be episode six here for us, Danielle. Uh, I'm Matt Hires, one of your hosts, and of course, alongside me is my co-host. Hey, I'm Danielle Myers. (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back uh, to the only weekly episodic podcast dedicated exclusively to true crimes committed in the state of South Carolina. We're so happy you're here with us, uh, listening on whatever medium you are listening on. I uh, just wanted to go ahead and give some shout-outs here at the beginning of this show. Thank you so much um, to Allison for listening, and hello to Max and Ollie. Those are her two little fur babies. I know that excites you, Danielle. I know. I love it so much. <laughs> <laughs> and thank you all so much for all the great feedback you've given all our listeners, all your suggestions on topics that you'd like to hear us cover And also all the likes, um, the subscriptions on Apple iTunes, all the great ratings and comments. We certainly appreciate those. If you don't mind here at the end of this episode, if you enjoyed it, hit that subscribe button. Also give us a five-star review and write a little something in the review. Again, it doesn't really matter what you write uh, according to Apple. It's just their algorithm. And like we said, 
be like Allison and put your pets' names in there. But thank you all so much for your feedback. Yeah, we really appreciate it. Yes. Well, Danielle, any feedback that you received um, concerning last week's two-part episode on Susan Smith? Um, I had a lot of people who reached out just saying that they remembered that like what happened and they remember hearing about it and some people I guess because it had been so long didn't realize or you know kind of forgot and so many years had passed about the details of the case and everything that happened so it was just um, interesting for them to hear and but I mean I've gotten nothing but you know positive things from people about you know us and what we're doing and that episode specifically so it's um it's been really good to hear. Yeah, and um, one of our friends, uh, Kate Odom, I think uh, she she got really into that case. We appreciate you listening, Kate. Bush Light, <laughs> Kate, Kate in the house. So uh, we, we certainly appreciate you um, and all our listeners as well. Well, without any further ado, I think we've got all the uh, thanks out of the way. And we're going to get into this story today. We're going to Gaffney, South Carolina. Uh, Gaffney, of course, it's the county seat of Cherokee County. Mm-hmm. Cherokee is located in the basically the northwestern portion of um, of South Carolina. It's right on the border of North Carolina, borders York County, Spartanburg. It's kind of right on the way uh, via I eighty five from Charlotte to Spartanburg, Greenville area. Uh, Gaffney was a textile town. Um, just like a lot of the places that we're going to cover uh, back in the, you know, from 1900 on uh, till about the 19, I'd say 1990s when jobs started getting shipped overseas, a lot of outsourcing of textile production um, went to, to different Asian countries. This was the hot spot in America for textile goods. Uh, for sheets, linens, anything like that. And Gaffney was certainly no exception. And especially in the time period that we're going back to, uh, we're going to start this story. It's going to be in two – it's really two stories intertwined, Danielle. It really is. It makes it even better, more interesting, I think. Yeah, so you've got got two storylines going at the same time. But we're going to start on the first one. And we're going to start with a man named Roger Zane Deadman. Uh, he was born back in 1940 in Cliffside, North Carolina, so right across the border from Gaffney. And Roger, pretty typical childhood, it seemed like. Not really much information on his background as a child, but after high school graduation, uh, Roger decided that he wanted to be an accountant. He wanted to go into that field. I guess math was really his thing, and that's what he wanted to pursue. So he did go to college. And uh, after one year of college, Roger decided that it really wasn't a, wasn't for him, uh, nor could his family afford to keep him going to college, which is which is sad. Oh, I think so. Uh, yeah, I mean, you hear about that all the time with folks. They they want to pursue education, and unfortunately, due to financial circumstances, they're not able to. Uh, so. Uh, Roger, after leaving college, uh, he did what most people did. They He went to work in a textile mill there locally, and that's not a bad living at all. Um, textile mills back then, they really took care of it, great benefits for their employees. They really valued them very much. So Roger went to work there in the tech, local textile mills, and um, that really wasn't for him either. So uh, Roger in 1963 – he decided to enlist in the U.S. Army, 
And uh, he got stationed down in Fort Gordon, Georgia, and he had an MOS of a radio operator. So pretty cool, pretty cool. And uh, he was getting ready to – Deadman was scheduled to be shipped out to Germany pretty soon there in 1963. And it was then that Roger met a woman, uh, Lucille Hyatt. Uh, Roger was only 23 years old, and Lucille was a 30-year-old uh, that actually had three children at the time. And Roger and Lucille got engaged, uh, which was pretty atypical for back then. I mean, you didn't see a lot of – it was usually older older men and younger women, and this time it was vice versa. Uh, Lucille was seven years his, Roger's senior and she also came with a ready-made family. She already had three children. And that was definitely unusual at that time. That's right. <laughs> and Deadman's parents, they really didn't – they weren't keen on the idea of their 23-year-old son who seemed to have a lot going for him, seemed like seemed like he finally got his life on track uh, in the U.S. Army. He found a niche for himself, and now he's he's hitching up with a woman that's 30 years old and has three kids. So – He's taken on a lot of responsibility all at once. Uh, so in 1964, uh, Lucille and, um, well, it was Annie Lucille Hyatt. She she went by Lucille. In 1964, uh, the two wed with Roger only having one more year left in his commitment to the U.S. Army. So after the one year of marriage, uh, Roger, he... He did get deployed. He had to be overseas for a while and away from home and his new wife and new three stepchildren. But on April 26th, 1965, Roger is finally discharged from the Army and he comes home to that ready-made family. I'm sure with him being away, both Lucille and Roger, they probably pictured pictured life together when Roger came home um, as pretty pretty nice. Uh, Roger, you know, coming home and taking care of the responsibilities, kind of the warden June Cleaver type of thing. I yeah, don't they know. Can, uh, they can finally get their their marriage going and get their lives started in this picturesque uh, thing that they believe in with marriage and kids. Certainly. And unfortunately, that wasn't the case. Um, Roger and Lucille, it was a rocky marriage from the get-go. Um they would often fight. Uh, Roger, after getting out of the Army, he went to work for the Pittsburgh Plate, Gr- Plate Glass uh, Factory. And um, Roger worked third shift. And Lucille really didn't like this uh, because, little into her background, she was she was a partier. She liked to go out. She liked her alcohol. Uh, she liked to go out every night. But uh, Roger was always working, so that really didn't didn't fit uh didn't fit into her lifestyle or what she wanted to do but she wanted to go out and live the nightlife and i think that'd be pretty hard i mean a 30 year old with 31 year old now with three kids oh yeah oh. like you have all these responsibilities and you're just going to skirt all of them so you can go have a good time while your husband's you know working his fingers to the bones to support your kids yeah going and <laughs> I'm going partying, but uh, Lucille, uh, while Roger had been deployed over in Germany as the radio operator, uh, she admitted she'd grown accustomed to frequenting the Highway 18 truck stop. 
and she continued even after Roger came mm-hmm. home and was working that third shift job. Lucille would all, always go to the truck stop. Now, truck stops back then, they weren't really what you're picturing, kind of like your modern-day Flying J or QT or anything like that. They, they always had restaurants attached, I guess maybe bars, I mean, since she liked her alcohol. But it's not as atypical as it sounds to go and visit a truck stop. Not at that time, so, it wasn't. No, no, not at that time. I mean, that's but, not where I choose to hang out. But, you know, a no. lot of these truckers were coming through, you know, no commitments. You know, they'd be gone within a day or two. And this is where people like to hang out and chill. I guess so, but um, now at um, the two continue to fight. They continue to have problems, usually revolving around uh, Roger's work schedule. But the two would really fight about anything, if we want to be honest. And at, at one point, uh, Lucille took out an arrest warrant for Roger for slapping her during an argument. And uh, Roger admitted to the incident and claimed that Lucille had tried to hit him with a bottle. Uh, so he was. He claimed he was defending himself, but Roger pled, pled guilty uh, to the charges, even though Lucille tried to have them dropped. So it was one of those instances where, yeah, I'm going to call the police on you, you hit me, and then a change of heart later on. Not uncommon. Is it not? This, um... So that was a nonverbal <laughs> agreement <laughs> from Danielle that that is not uncommon. For that to happen, for a wife to sometimes want to uh, drop the charges after she realizes the severity of of charging her spouse with assault. But uh, Roger, he did plead guilty. And in 1966, uh, Roger and Lucille, they decided, you know what we need that might make this relationship better is another child. So child number four comes on. It's uh, Roger Dedman Jr., and in early 1967, Roger got a new job with Fiber Industries, which was a textile plant uh, there in Spindale, North Carolina, where they were residing at the time. Now, he was hired a day shift, and he was hoping that would alleviate some of the couple's problems, but it did not. Uh, they just found other things to continue fighting about. And there in early 1967, uh, May 20th to be exact, uh, Roger and Lucille, they kind of planned a date night. They were going to go out and get drunk and have a good time together. And uh, the two decided they would go bar hopping uh, down around the Gaffney, South Carolina area. So right across the border, that's Spindale is really close to the North Carolina, South Carolina border. So they went down there, um, went bar hopping, you know, went to the, I think they went to the Highway 18 truck stop. Um, maybe had a few beers there, maybe something to eat. And witnesses at some of these bars, they said that the two were constantly fighting. And if you've ever been in a bar or a bar scenario, you know that couple. You The two that always, they're raising hell at each other. They're making everything awkward for, for everybody. And, you know, I've, back in my wilder drinking days maybe i'm i may have been a participant in one of those relationships myself I mean, uh, we've all had you were there drunk we've all yeah, we've all had <laughs> drunken arguments and i'll tell you if i'm not a part of one which has been a long time thank god um 
I'm watching you because I, I appreciate a good dinner and a show, you know. So, <laughs> well, Roger and Lucille, they certainly caused the spectacle that night. Um, and it just wasn't one place, as we talked about. They went to several bars where they were fighting, yelling at each other. And in one, one bar, um, Lucille even threw a bottle at Roger and scratched him on the face. She likes to come after with those bottles. She does. Huh. That's her. That's her mo. That's her. Mo, was it modus operandi? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's her thing. But um, uh, finally, after six bars and six bars of just showing their ass and fighting with each other, the couple decided that it was time. You know, we we probably need to head home. So, accounts at this point were conflicted about who exactly was driving, but one thing's for sure: both of them were. Shit face drunk. Probably neither so, one of them needed to be driving. No, they, they certainly didn't. But uh, Roger and Lucille, they si- decided to stop at an all-night restaurant uh, to grab some sandwiches. Uh, this was, I don't really know, and I should know, the history of Waffle Houses <laughs> and, and their lineage and history. But I think this 1967 may have been pre-Waffle House. So that that was always the go-to when you're intoxicated late at night because they had good food, mm-hmm. stick to your ribs. Uh, it would be, you know, fairly affordable, and they were open 24 hours. So this was a restaurant there in Gaffney uh, that um, they were the two had stopped to get sandwiches and something to eat. Well, in the parking lot, the two decided to fight again, out yelling in front of everybody, and finally Roger said enough. Shut up. I'm going inside to get sandwiches. And um, he left her there out in the parking lot in the car, presumably. Well, when Roger came out with the sandwiches, uh, Lucille wasn't in the car. Um, now, this restaurant, it was a popular late-night spot with the drinking crowd. And um, while Roger, he just thought that maybe he had pissed off Lucille so bad that maybe she saw one of her friends there at the restaurant and was able to hitch a ride with them, or you know, one of them stopped by and said, "Hey, we saw you were fighting all night at the bars. You, you want to ride with us? I mean, we might go get a nightcap and then we'll take you home." And this is pre-cell phone, so you can't send a text. You can't give them a call and say, "Hey, where are you?" You just have to go off of your instinct, which is, I mean, she's probably done that before, right? So and he's and like, she had. "Okay, you know what? Let's take some time apart. Let's cool off." She'll either be home when I get home or I'll pass out when I get home and wake up and she'll be there. Well, Roger, he waited around a little bit to see if she would come back. Maybe she went somewhere to use the restroom or or who knows, took a walk to cool off. But when she didn't return after quite a while, Roger decided to go ahead and drive home back to Spindale. So he drove the 45 minutes drunk Mm. back to Spindale, got home. Went and flopped in the bed and passed out. Well, the next morning, Roger awoke to a knock at the door. And it was the police. And on his way to the door, you know, he kind of woke up out of that drunken fog and was looking around. And he kind of half-heartedly noticed, hey, Lucille's not in bed, you know. Mm. Maybe she's on the couch or maybe she's already up with the kids. I don't know. But he made his way to the door and opened it and it was the police. Now, the police informed him that Lucille 
she had been found. They did know where she was. And Lucille Dedman had been found raped, strangled, and splayed across Jerusalem Road right on the center line of the highway. Mm. Someone found her that morning. And uh, the police asked Roger to accompany them to the spot uh, where they'd found the body. And at this point, I was kind of wondering, well, what what about all these kids they have? And the oldest the oldest child at this time was 13. Uh, so she was put in charge of taking care of all the rest. And Roger said, oh, my God, you know, Lucille's been killed and left the uh, other children there in the care again of the 13-year-old. Now... The police asked Roger to accompany them back to the spot where they found the body. And they revealed a piece of interesting evidence to him that uh, while on the way back home to Spindale from Gaffney uh, that Saturday night before, that a lady had copied down Roger's license plate number and reported him for suspected drunk driving around 12.15 a.m. So that would have been when he was on the way home from the sandwich shop and Roger he was more than happy to provide his story to the police, let them know exactly what happened in his mind. Again, it's pretty foggy because they were really getting into the booze that night. So the police, they accepted Roger's explanation of exactly what was going on that night. Well, they, they accepted him telling them, but they really thought there was more to this story because they had several eyewitnesses now from six bars I mean, they made a mark everywhere they went. I mean, you don't really Yeah, they made a spectacle. <laughs> you, you, don't, you don't forget that couple that was fighting or... And not only just having an argument, but being physically violent towards each other. I mean, that would definitely stand out to me. Yeah, and so people remembered Roger and Lucille, and they were able to provide police with a lot of information about what exactly happened when they went bar hopping that night. Now, the police, they, they became a little suspicious of Roger. And they asked him to take a lie detector test, and he agreed, and he passed uh, regarding the story that he told. And now after days of interrogation, the investigators finally announced that Roger had confessed to murdering his wife, uh, Lucille Dedman. Uh, Roger claimed that he, he never remembered killing her, but that he was drunk. And this guy drove 45 minutes, so this is hard to... I mean, that's hard to fathom, but he said he was so drunk, he, he really, truly did not remember that. I mean, that's not the first time people have used that, you know, where they, they were so drunk, they get blackout to the point where they said, I, something could have happened, and I don't remember. Yeah, and I mean, personal experience, that's feasible. I mean, that's, sometimes you don't remember exactly what happened, or you... Or he probably didn't even remember that 45-minute drive home. You remember a vague chain of events. And and then you question, what I remember, is that really what happened? Or is that just what I think I remember that's happened? And just being in that drunken stupor, you don't know what's what's real and what's not. Yeah, and it's not uncommon for people to call their friends and say, dude, what did I do at the bar last night? And, you know. What happened? Yeah, I heard I had a good time, but I, I, don't, I don't really know. Well, I feel like I had a good time. <laughs> this was kind of the position Roger was in. But Roger, he ended up uh, he ended up being arrested that Monday morning and charged with murder. Uh, so he maintained his stance with his attorneys 
uh, that this is exactly what his story was. He did not remember, but he also claimed he did not confess to this crime. And the sheriffs and the deputies that arrested Roger, they rebutted this and said that Roger did indeed confess. Did they have anything? Did they have any, um, I mean, I don't think things were taped at this point in time, but did they have some kind of written confession, anything that he signed off on? No, we were going to get into that in the trial, but I'll go ahead and answer that. A written or signed confession was never able to be produced from Roger Dedman. Hmm. So what we're going off of is the sheriff and a few of his deputies saying, yes, we heard him say he did it. Trusting that law enforcement is being truthful. Right. And you have Roger saying, no, it's it's not. I did not confess, and I don't remember killing my wife. So Roger went to trial, and the prosecutors, they decided to change the charge from murder to manslaughter. They thought that would be an easier conviction, especially considering the lack of a written confession and also Roger's inability to remember what happened that night and how intoxicated Deadman had been. So on December 12, 1967, the trial began, and the prosecution, they used uh, the police officers uh, to testify to Roger's confession. Uh, Several witnesses from the bars that night took the stand to testify to uh, Roger and Lucille's fighting. And Roger took the stand and he vehemently denied ever giving a confession and saying that he was not guilty. Now, the jury was made up of 10 men and two women and the trial, it was extremely short. And after, after deliberating for only four hours... And Roger, he was found guilty of manslaughter and sentenced to 18 years of hard labor with the South Carolina Department of Corrections. So that was was the events of May uh, 1967. And Roger Dedman has been convicted of killing his wife, Lucille, laying her raped body on the center line of Jerusalem Road in Union County. Uh, just across the border from Gaffney, South Carolina. And when we return, we're going to get on to the second part of this story that intertwines with this, and it's going to be even more bizarre. So stay tuned after this quick message from our sponsors. And we're back to Carolina Crimes. Uh, When we left off, Roger Dedman had just been convicted of uh, manslaughter, for the death of his wife, Lucille Dedman, and was sentenced to 18 years of hard labor in prison in South Carolina. Now, we're going to fast forward a little bit to uh, a few months later, January 28, 1968, to be exact. And 14-year-old Nancy Christine, um, she went by Tina Reinhardt, a 14-year-old girl. She left her home on Montgomery Street in Gaffney to go show her mother a new outfit she had gotten uh, around 2.30 p.m. that afternoon. And she went to walk, which it wasn't a far distance. Her mother worked at the Top Dollar store, which I've, I've never heard of Top Dollar. Uh, I, I don't know if that was specific to Gaffney or if that was something like a like a family dollar or like a dollar tree. I like a good dollar tree. Or Dollar General or, or something along those lines, but... 
Anyway, uh, Tina Reinhardt, she went off walking to uh, see her mother and show her her new outfit at the Top Dollar Store. And Nancy Christine Reinhardt was never seen again. Um, a missing persons report was filed. Police were on alert. Uh, they knew that this 14-year-old girl was missing at this time, the uh, Cherokee County Sheriff's Department and the Gaffney Police Department. Now, one day later, uh, on January 29th, uh, Nancy Carol Paris, uh, she was a 20-year-old newlywed. She went out to walk her brand-new poodle that she had just gotten for Christmas. And she was also never seen again. Uh, the last time that anyone reported seeing Nancy Carol Paris was around 3.40 p.m. that afternoon while she was walking her dog. At this point, within 48 hours, two young women are missing in the city of Gaffney, and Gaffney went bananas. Uh, schools were closed. Uh, not a gun was to be found in any of the gun shops around Gaffney. And search parties started combing the town looking for these two missing young women. So certainly a very frightening two uh, turn of events within 48 hours. In a small town where something like this doesn't happen, I'm sure everybody knows everybody and would be much more prevalent than it is now some of these bigger cities. It's Right. And Gaffney was a lot smaller at this point. There was, of course, all the workers – in the textile mills, but it's not what it is today. Uh, the population was about 20,000 less than it is at this point today. So really it was around 15,000 people within the actual town of Gaffney. Nowadays, I mean, Gaffney's known for peaches and football. <laughs> you know, they, Two good things. Yeah, uh, and, and that's what the city of Gaffney is known for most of all. But back then it was textiles. Uh, so Sheriff Wright, uh, Julian B. Wright of Cherokee County, uh, he admitted that police, they were stymied. They were dumbfounded. They had no leads, no real evidence, no connection between uh, Nancy Christine Reinhardt or Nancy Carol Paris. I mean, they didn't run in the same circle, didn't know the same people, and there was a pretty significant age gap there. Uh, most importantly, they had no bodies. Uh, they had no suspects. Well, this town, they lived in terror at this point, just wondering why were these girls missing? Where were they at? Was someone snatching them? Was it an unfortunate turn of events? But in February 8th, on February 8th, 1968, um, they got a little bit of clarity, and it was through Bill Gibbons. He was the managing editor of the Gaffney Ledger, uh, the newspaper there in Gaffney, South Carolina, and he got a bizarre phone call. It was anonymous. And the caller, he told Bill Gibbons to take out three sheets of paper because he was going to give him three stories. And he said, okay, take the first sheet of paper. He said, right at the top, Nancy Christine. And then he gave a list of instructions. He said, go by the junior high school to the chain gang road. Follow the bridge or follow the road to the second bridge. You'll see a dirt road. Turn off onto it and go to the top of the hill. Turn left and go to the edge of the woods. Face I-85 and walk a quarter mile through the woods and uh, down and up another hill and look for a brush pile. And he said, all right, take the second 
sheet of paper, and right at the top, Nancy, <clears throat> Nancy Carol Paris. He said, go to the bridge on the Old Fork Road and look in the water. He said, get the sheriff to go with you. This is not a prank call. So very ominous. Now, on the third sheet of paper, the caller told Gibbons to write, March 20th, 1967, Jerusalem Road, Union County, Annie Lucille Dedman, Spindale, North Carolina. And again, the caller reiterated, make sure you get the sheriff to go with you. This is not a prank. So pretty ominous. And this is, again, this is 1968. So it's before, it's before Ted Bundy or the Zodiac Killer or any of these serial killers that started contacting the media. This was, this was beyond the realm of comprehension. That what what is this idiot up to, or, or what is this guy? What's his what's his end game? What is he trying to say here? And of course, when you say this isn't a prank call, it probably made him think. That that's exactly what it was. Right. This is a prank call. <laughs> well, <clears throat> two hours after speaking with the Bill Gibbons, the caller, the caller, uh, the same guy, he called Sheriff's rights, Sheriff Wright's office to confirm with him if Gibbons had called him or not. And Sheriff Wright, you know, Bill Gibbons had gone to the sheriff and said, hey, look, this guy called my office, kept me on the phone for a little while told me to take out these three sheets of paper and these weird cryptic messages. So Sheriff Wright, he dismissed it. He thought it was a prank. But um, anyway, he did agree reluctantly. He said, okay, well, Bill, I'll, I'll go with you. I'll ride with you, and um, we'll start at uh, the Old Fork Road Bridge because that's closest. Let's head on over there and see see what this jack leg's talking about. So Bill Gibbons and Sheriff Julian Wright they drove to the Old Fork Road Bridge, uh, stopped the car and got out, went and looked over the side of the bridge, and there they found the nude body of a woman, half on the bank and half face down in the water. This was the body of Nancy Carol Paris, uh, who had been missing since January 29th, 1968. And uh, she, both she and her dog uh, were strangled, that poodle that she was walking. Uh, when investigators got on the scene, um, they they were able to tell that Nancy Carol Paris had been raped, beaten, and she had cigarette burns on her back. Mm. So a sadistic, sadistic person did this to Nancy Carol Paris, and it was just an awful scene. Well, Gibbons and Wright looked at each other, and they said, hey, we might want to take this guy seriously. Let's go follow the directions on uh, on sheet one that he gave us. So they took a few officers with them, and they went to the chain gang road as they were instructed on paper number one. And the officers, they followed the directions around, and they fanned out in the area uh, that was described and found a body under the brush pile. The body, they could tell it had a deep bruise around the neck consistent with strangulation. And they could tell that she had been raped, and the body was ID'd positively as Nancy Christine Reinhardt. Tina, the young girl that was walking to the top dollar store to see her mother, show her her new outfit, and was snatched and obviously raped and murdered. 
somewhere around January 28th. Uh, now that the sheriff had heard the caller uh, when he called him previously, while Gibbons was actually standing in the room with him, uh, Sheriff Wright he did disclose and want released in the media that they had found the bodies of the two missing women. But one thing he didn't disclose was that a caller called in, just that Bill Gibbons from the Gaffney Ledger had provided this information. So this is getting some side eyes and some eyebrows raised at, hey, how did Bill Gibbons know this and know where these bodies were found? Yeah, that's pretty coincidental, if you will. They probably started questioning, you know, if he knew more than he was letting on, maybe because he's the one that actually did this. Yeah. Now, authorities, they had, they knew it wasn't Bill Gibbons, but they weren't allowing the public to know that. So poor Bill Gibbons, he's being looked at by his neighbors, uh, people that he knows, everybody in town. His kids are getting bullied at school because... Hey, your dad knew where these dead bodies were and nobody else did. Now, what the hell's going on? Well, four days later, another call comes into Bill Gibbons, and it was the same voice that had called him previously, uh, the one that told him to take out the three sheets of paper. And again, he did the, um, he, uh, did the piece of paper routine, and he said, Write down March 1967, Jerusalem Road, Union County, Spindale, North Carolina, Annie Lucille Deadman. And the caller said again, take the sheriff with you. And Gibbons and Sheriff Wright went to the location and found nothing. Now, they had done this previously with the other, when the three sheets of paper were asked to be brought out, you know, Listeners are probably saying, well, why didn't they go investigate that? But they went and there was nothing there. Um, Now, Jerusalem Road was right across the Cherokee County line in Union County. So that wasn't Sheriff Wright's jurisdiction. But he started looking into this and wondering, well, why does he keep sending us to this Jerusalem Road when there's nothing there? You know, we've looked in this area and, and given us this name. And he did uh, receive some feedback from Union County Sheriff's Department linking Jerusalem Road uh, to Lucille Deadman. And it was confirmed that, hey, this this was the spot where a dead body was found uh, back in May 1967, not March. So the caller, the anonymous caller, had obviously gotten that month mixed up. He probably knew it was in springtime, started with an M, and said uh, – March instead of May, but Union County officials, they confirmed, they said, this case has been solved. Yeah, we got our person. He's in jail. Right. And Roger's sitting in prison right now. You know, he confessed. Um, I'm, you, you can't see me on a podcast. I'm using air quotes. He confessed. So <clears throat> the Cherokee County Sheriff Wright and also Bill Gibbons, they got this information and Gibbons went home for the night, and around 9.15 p.m., the caller calls Gibbons at home. I think this is the most frightening part because now— I mean, I think to get the information, like the phone number for, you know, the Gaffney Ledger is one thing, but to get my my personal home phone, which was landlines at the time, mm-hmm. to get that information would be very unsettling to me. Right. 
And the caller said, this is the same man that called you before. I mean, no shit. I'm sure he <laughs> recognized the voice at that point. Yeah, I mean, come on. But, um, <clears throat> excuse me, he said, uh, we're going to have to do something about that man down yonder serving my sentence. And Gibbon said, what are you, what are you talking about? And the caller said, I killed Mrs. Deadman just like I killed Mrs. Paris and Miss Reinhardt. He said, I killed them all with them begging me not to do it. The killer went on to say that Mrs. Deadman passed him uh, near Linder's Vineyard at a high rate of speed the night that he murdered her with her husband drunk and passed out in the passenger side. He said he got behind him and tailed him for a little while. Uh, they were heading towards Gaffney. And he saw that her and her husband, her husband had woken up by this point, and they were fighting in the car. So he followed the two, uh, to the, the Deadmans, to the restaurant. And when Roger went in to get the sandwiches, the caller said that he approached the car and asked Lucille if she needed a ride. And without hesitation, Lucille went with him. So now we kind of figure out what exactly happened at that sandwich shop when Roger went in to get the sandwiches to go for them. And uh, the caller, he went on into very descriptive detail about Lucille Deadman, which I think he was trying to prove to Bill Gibbons, hey, I really killed him. Either one of two things are occurring here. Rather, somehow this serial killer has a conscience and he doesn't want someone falsely accused and sitting in prison for something he did, or he's that braggadocious and that egotistical that he wants his body count to be higher and he wants credit for that first murder of Lucille Deadman. I'm probably going to have to go with the latter on that one. <laughs> yeah, at, at first I said, well, let's maybe, maybe he has some kind of a semblance of a heart, but it, the more I thought about it, uh, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and side with you on this one. This isn't going to cause an argument. But uh, the caller went in um, to very descriptive detail about Lucille Deadman on the night that she was murdered. Things that only the killer would know. He wanted to make sure that he gave details that only he would know. Said she, uh, Miss Deadman had on blue size five shoes. Her purse uh, was blue with a snap top. In it was lipstick, a comb, a picture of a girl sitting on the back of a white Ford Falcon, car keys, and a watch with no band. He said she had on an open bottom dress with no coat stockings, and a 36-inch bra. He said, I took the body to Union County to throw suspicion off of Cherokee County where I killed her. He said he laid her under the Transformers on Old Jerusalem Road with her head downhill and her eyes open. And after he hung up, he called Gibbons back <laughs> right after that, and he said, oh, yeah, one more thing. Mrs. Dedman had some Harris Teeter stamps in her purse, too. So he really wanted to go that extra mile to get credit for Annie Lucille Deadman's death. And you can't get much more specific than that. Yeah, and um, he also informed Gibbons that he had used the same weapon in all three deaths, but he wouldn't say what that was when Gibbons asked him because he said that would give him away. Now, he also, uh, the caller, said that Lucille's murder occurred after midnight, which was also deemed correct. And the call, caller also admitted 
that Tina Reinhardt was killed at 10 a.m. That would have meant she was kidnapped at 2.30 p.m. on January 28th, but he killed her at 10 a.m. the next day, the 29th. So he kept her overnight. Which isn't usually typical of uh, serial killers. I think some do, but... I think that makes it a little bit more sadistic that he wanted to keep her. And it's probably where these cigarette burns come from and this torture aspect to this crime. He wanted her to suffer. Yeah, and I guess he wanted her as his possession. And, of course, she was raped. So God knows what Tina Reinhardt went through in the hands of this caller. Uh, the caller went on to elaborate as well that the, the coroner got Mrs. Paris's time of death correct. Uh, according to what he had read, read, um, read in the Gaffney Ledger. Now, Big, Bill Gibbons told the caller, he said, now, don't you think that you should turn yourself in? And the caller replied, do you think I'm crazy? They'd give me the chair, which yeah, back then, yeah, and, and he deserved it by what he's admitting to here. Uh, Gibbons expressed to the caller that he needed help, and if he cooperated, maybe he wouldn't get the death penalty, and the, the caller replied with, no, I'll get this chair. He, he was pretty sure. <laughs> no, I know. I know what my fate's going to be. I'm, I'm, I don't need you to tell me otherwise. Yeah, and he, he admitted, he said, I'm a psycho. So the caller, he, he went on and um, he asked, the, or actually Gibbons asked the caller where he picked up the Paris woman, and the caller said that would give him away too. But he also admitted that he had revisited Tina Reinhardt's dumping site at least seven to eight times over that span of nine days where folks were looking for her and combing everything. So, And Lord knows that he go there just to be in the area, just to relive that moment, or did he do something to her body? Well, with famous serial killers like Ted Bundy, you know that they they participated in necrophilia a lot. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't want to go there especially with this being a young child, but it's a possibility. I mean, the guy's clearly got some things going on with him. You can't really put anything past him at this point. And uh, the caller, he admitted, as I said earlier, that he's a psycho. And he elaborated saying that the police would just have to shoot me like the dog I am. And Gibbons then asked him the magic question that really, as soon as the first call came into Gibbons, he said, if you're not turning yourself in, then, man, why the hell are you calling me? <laughs> I mean, no, like, leave me out of it. Why are, you, why are you dead set on getting me involved in this that I didn't have any part of? Well, the caller said, uh, he stated again, he said, I can't stand the fact that that man is down there serving my time. And by this time, we realized that he was referring to Roger Dedman. And uh, the caller, he left... Um, one ominous message before hanging up. He said, if they don't catch me, there'll be more deaths. So Bill Gibbons, he's knee deep in the middle of this thing. And I don't. And it's a sense of urgency to hopefully prevent another victim coming out of this by this sicko. Right. And again, we're talking 1968. I don't really know the. The call tracing techniques or technology at this time, 
It's certainly not like caller ID where you can actually look at the phone like we do nowadays and see exactly who's calling you. There's not cell tower pings. I don't think they had star six, seven where you could see who was the last number that dialed you. No, no. (laughs) So, I mean, tracing a call, that's, that's out of the question at this point. Now, the morning after that call uh, to Bill Gibbons, it was February 13th, and it was 7.15 a.m., a 15-year-old girl named Opal Diane Buxton was walking to her school bus stop with her siblings up a half-mile dirt road that her and her family lived on. Uh, and Opal, was she was out ahead of the crowd. You know, she had younger siblings. She probably didn't want to have to deal with their drama that morning. And I get it. Yeah, she had longer legs anyway, so she kind of took off ahead of the pack. Well, Opal's sister, Gracie, she was trailing about 50 yards behind Opal, and Opal rounded a corner out of Gracie's sight, and then Gracie heard her scream. So she took off running to try to catch up with her sister, and Gracie turned the bend, and she said that she saw a white man, 25 to 30, in a dark-colored car, grab her sister, and throw her in the trunk of his sedan. She could tell that was what kind of car it was. Now, at this point, it's worth noting that Opal Diane Buxton was African-American. The other three victims of this killer had been Caucasian. So there's no clear age, you know, race. It doesn't seem like there's a specific, um, I guess you could say, victim type that this person has it no. seems like it's just opportunity i want to do this and you're available and it's it's not a type and the killer he obviously wants to prey on women whether it be for sexual gratification or if he just thinks they're easier to kidnap than men which more likely than not uh, this is not a sexist remark but more often than not women have smaller frames and they i guess they would be easier to kidnap well especially if you've got this is the second 14-year-old girl. I mean, 14-year-old girls don't have a lot up against a grown adult male. Right. And now he does have the four women and a poodle. So that's what, those are the people that he had killed. Uh, Now, when the man saw Gracie running toward him, he turned around, or when the man saw Gracie, uh, Gracie got scared. She was like, hey, this man might type take me too so well, she i mean rightfully so you just watched him snatch up your sister and throw him in the trunk right in front of you and she turned around and hightailed back up the dirt road toward her house uh, to get her parents now the Buxons they didn't have a phone in their home so opal's father emmanuel he had to drive to his mother's house to call the police to let them know that his daughter opal had just been abducted this started a county-wide manhunt and as we talked about before about Opal being an African-American. Here's another significant point to this story. And there's not many many silver linings to a story about serial killers, but this is probably the closest you're going to get to one. At this point in history, if you look back at American history, in 1968, uh, the schools in Cherokee County, they were beginning the process of integrating the schools the white and the black schools. There was a lot of racial tension at this time. A lot of black-on-white crime, black-on-white fights, um, 
certainly animosity on, on both sides uh, because it was something new, it was something different and unfamiliar to, to the citizens of Gaffney. But with the kidnapping of Opal Buxton, it wasn't just, hey, there's a guy out there snatching white girls. It wasn't, hey, there's a girl out or a guy out there snatching black girls. It was, hey, there's somebody out there that's after all our girls. So at that point, that was really a time where the community of Gaffney, they became cohesive. And you started seeing integrated search parties. You started seeing blacks and whites working together. They had a common goal, and they had a common enemy, and that was trying to stop this bastard that was picking up these girls off the side of the road and killing them. And I think this was considered at the time like the largest manhunt that had been seen, I guess, at the time because they had never had such a huge turnout, a huge search party for a person who had been abducted. But this community was, I think, taking their their community back and was like, I'm not going to live in fear. We're not going to, you know, have this person just going around just taking anybody. Right. And if you've ever met anybody from Gaffney, they don't take much shit off anybody. So that's you've got an entire county of angry people searching for you. You're this killer that have made these anonymous calls, and now we've got to make on you what you look like, what your car looks like. I think that guy might be need to be more in fear of these people than they need to be of him. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, this, uh, this caller, this uh, man that abducted Opal Buxton, now there's a manhunt on in Cherokee County. And when we return from these messages, we'll get into that manhunt let you know the results, and finish up this episode and give you a conclusion to this story from Gaffney, South Carolina. When we left off, a countywide manhunt was being set out by the Cherokee County Sheriff's Department looking for that white man between the ages of 25 and 30 and that dark-colored car. Well, on February 14th, Henry Transow, uh, who was a local golf pro, and his buddy Lester Skinner, who was a game warden, they went out uh, out and about to join the search, and they were looking around, driving around the Cherokee County back roads. Well, on one of these back roads, they pulled up on something pretty suspicious. Uh, it was a younger white man. He was standing next to a black 1957 Chevy, and he was trying to block the road with logs. Transow and Skinner, they hopped out of their car, and when the man noticed them approaching him, he jumped back into his 57 Chevy and took off. Now, Transow and Skinner, they jumped back into their vehicle and engaged in a high-speed pursuit of the man in the 1957 Chevy, and I can just imagine this, you know, gravel flying, and we listen listen to Small Town Murder, another fantastic podcast with Jimmy Wisman and James Petragallo, and what they likened it to, and I'm going to give them credit, they said it's something like out of the Dukes of Hazard. Mm-hmm. These two cars traveling down back roads, probably jumping over potholes and who knows what, but Transal and Skinner, they were in hot pursuit. Now, the pair, they never caught up to the man in the 57 Chevy, but what they did do 
uh, what they were able to do was get the license plate number of that 57 Chevy. Transal went to the police, and a search party was sent back out to where the man was initially seen by the two. Now, 100 yards away from where Skinner and Transal saw the man in the 57 Chevy, that's where Opal Buxton's uh, dead body was found. Uh, Opal, just like the rest of the women, she had been raped, strangled, and this time she'd been stabbed. Because we, we had a little preliminary discussion before we started we went on the air with this, Danielle, talking about strangling. And uh, you made the point, you said, you know, sh- strangling somebody to death is probably pretty hard. Yeah, it takes, I mean, I know when you, um, <clears throat> if you were to drown somebody, it takes about six minutes. I mean, it takes it takes a while to um, to strangle the life out of somebody. And on top of that, it's something that's very personal. I mean, yeah. you're looking at this person while you're taking their life away. Right, and uh, at this time, uh, this killer, he had also incorporated stabbing now. So that sounds so. like a uh, like an escalation at that point. Like maybe he's preparing to be more vicious now. And he's, he's perfecting his craft. Mm-hmm. He is. And he probably also realized, the killer, that he didn't have the luxury of sitting there and taking the time to strangle and struggle with this victim because he'd been seen. So he knew that someone – there was an eyewitness to him kidnapping Opal. So at this point, he tried to, probably wanted to try to just discard her body as quickly as he could. Now, the police set up a stakeout of the area to see if the killer returned like he did and admitted on the call with Bill Gibbons uh, like he did to Tina Reinhart's body in her dumping site. And the Cherokee County Sheriff's Department, in the meantime – they run the vehicle tag uh, provided by Transal and Skinner and match that vehicle with a 30-year-old married textile mill worker and a father of three. And the name of that man was Lee Roy Martin. That's two words, Lee Roy Martin. On February 17th, authorities, they went to the textile mill where Martin was working and executed an arrest warrant uh, on Martin there in front of his co-workers uh, during a lunch period. I can only imagine what that would be like. You're just uh, taking your lunch break at work, hanging out with some co-workers, and then all of a sudden the mm-hmm. cops bust in and, and take away right. one of the and people that's just sitting there eating lunch with you a few seconds ago. Right, and you're obviously sitting there in lunch table conversation. Most definitely it was revolving around what was going on and that they were looking for this man, and he was probably sitting there just participating just like anybody else. Uh, but the police, uh, they they um, they arrested Leroy Martin, and after looking at his criminal record, uh, the only mark on it was a 1957 arrest for assault with intent to rape. Hmm. So maybe... That arrest back then, it triggered something in his mind that if I'm going to go around raping these women, you know, if I leave them alive, they're going to tell on me mm-hmm. and I'm going to get in trouble. So that's probably the point where Leroy Martin started. He made up his mind that if I ever do this again, I'm not going to leave any witnesses alive. Now, the police, they conducted a search of Leroy Martin's property. And what they found in his room, they found a small hairbrush, 
keys belonging to Lucille Deadman and those Harris Teeter stamps that he made such a point to call Bill Gibbons back about and um, let him know that he had those. So do you think when he called Bill Gibbons and was giving him these descriptions of things that were in her purse to prove that he not only was there but had something to do with her murder, possibly was looking at these things while he was doing it and holding the comb and saying the comb and the teeth, you know, the stamps and, you know, just creepily I can see him looking at these things while he's listing them off to him. I mean, it's just a a weird thought. Taking these items out of her purse and holding these tangible items and then Probably at the bottom of the purse were these stamps, and oh yeah, I got to call him back and tell him about this. Oh, I found one more thing. I, yeah, make sure I mention this. This is important. Right. So those Harris Teeter stamps were found along with all the other property that had belonged to uh, Annie Lucille Deadman. Now, when Cherokee County officials they announced the arrest of Leroy Martin, hundreds gathered at the courthouse steps to try to get a glimpse of this monster, and that brought about an even more eerie and probably one of the most disturbing parts of this story that the family of Nancy Christine Reinhardt, they were there. Now, they remembered back on February 15th, uh, the family had had the funeral or the the wake for Nancy Christine Reinhardt, and back then it was a little bit different. Um, funeral homes had and mortuaries, they'd always been around, but a lot of people, especially down south, they would set the body up in their actual home, uh, in their parlor or living room. They'd have the casket there, and the family would have friends and church members that would come and invite them. I think I have some, uh, I don't have, but I've seen some old black and whites, you know, going through pictures in my grandparents' homes of ancestors and things, and, and seeing that late, somebody just laid out in, in a person's living room with people just sitting there with chairs set up, and it seems like such a weird concept. And kind of creepy to think that that's in your own home, but it it was nothing abnormal at the time. Right. It, was, it seemed to be fairly commonplace to, to have something like this in your home. Well, on February 15th, um, Nancy Christine Reinhardt, her family, they did have this visitation in their home. And a stranger came, which wasn't atypical because a lot of people, they knew about this case. A lot of people knew the family and... It's almost like a wedding or a wedding crasher. You know, there, there's always there's people there. At, I mean, there were people at your wedding and there were people at my wedding that I had no clue who they were. Mm-hmm. I, I couldn't have told you, but somehow they were there. They were somehow connected to our family or my wife's family, anybody. But a stranger uh, came to the uh, visitation at the Reinhardt home and he stood next to the coffin with Tina's mother. And one of his quotes was, she sure is a pretty girl. And he consoled Tina's mother and sat and had a a cup of coffee with her there at the home. And he stayed at the home for a few hours, hours hanging out with the family. That's brazen. (laughs) Yeah. And, I mean, as you've probably already figured out, Tina Reinhardt, her family, when they saw Leroy Martin being brought down the steps as – the killer and uh, who we now know as the Gaffney Strangler, that was the stranger that was in their house. That is sick. That is that is brazen and just 
one of the most disgusting things that I've heard since we've been doing this podcast. And that shows that goes back to one of the things, you know, ways that you described him earlier was uh, that shows um, how narcissistic he was, you know, just to think so highly of himself of that I did this. They don't know I did this. I'm in their own home standing here looking over the body that. You know, I'm the reason that she's here and not having a care in the world or a fear. And no, nobody knows it but me. I'm smarter than everybody else, and I know something that nobody and I, else knows. And I'm knows. sure those thoughts were all going through his head during that time. And I couldn't imagine afterwards the family making that connection, how they must have felt. Mm-hmm. Just sick, sick to the pit of their stomach. And now – Leroy Morton, he was also recognized by someone else, a co-worker, that just a few days previously, while police were looking for this Gaffney Strangler, this killer that was out there, uh, Leroy Martin had offered her a ride home uh, from work. They worked at the same T-shirt factory there in Gaffney, and Leroy Martin, he saw her standing outside waiting for her brother-in-law to come give her a ride. And he said, are, are you sure? You know, it's real dangerous. That guy's out here on the loose. Let me help you and give you a ride here. And she politely declined, but she said, you know, thank you, Leroy. That's that's very sweet of you, but I, I'm going to go ahead and wait for my brother-in-law. And he persisted, you know, are you sure? Are you sure? That, that was going to be his next victim. Afterwards, she probably was extremely grateful and probably just felt so relieved that she didn't you know take that ride because um she she probably would have ended up just like all the others right and i actually had the opportunity to speak to that lady's niece this week um brenda dawkins and she was able to relay that her aunt that that story always creeped her out and she would tell that story about the gaffney strangler and how she was just a frog's hair away from being his next victim, and that's so scary to think about. Well, especially someone you what you think you know really well. I mean, you work alongside this person every single day. Nothing weird about them offering you a ride, especially with all this going on, and he's trying to use that fear to get her into his car when, when actually it's like I'm saving you from the danger, but he was really trying to pull her into the danger that was sitting right in front of her. Right, and he wasn't – we're going to put pictures online on our social media at a Carolina Crimes Podcast on Facebook and also at SC Crimes Pod on Twitter of Leroy Martin. And he wasn't – he didn't look like a monster. He wasn't even a big guy. No, he, he wasn't big. He was objectively a, a handsome guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, he he's no – I'm trying to think of a star from – he, he was no – uh, that was before Burt Reynolds' time, but he was no—he was no like Hollywood matinee idol. But he was—he was a decent-looking man. I mean, he had a wife and three kids. Nobody would have ever suspected him of being the Gaffney Strangler. Well, on February 27th, at the direction of Martin, uh, police searched a well that was in the vicinity of where Opal's body was found, and it turned out to be a treasure trove of evidence. Uh, there was a coat in there with the initials ODB on it, Opal Diane Buxon. Uh, there was a billfold, stockings, a black bra, a garter belt, a shirt, 
a slip, underwear, shoes, uh, both shirts, men's and women's. And all the women's items, they were all identified as belonging to the victims of the Gaffney Strangler. But the men's stuff, it, it looks like he may have thrown his murder clothes in there, if he'd gotten blood on anything. He certainly didn't want to bring that home to his wife or be seen or in possession of that at all. But um, that was uh, now on February 28th. We're going to switch gears here. Uh, correctional officers for the South Carolina Department of Corrections. They decided to visit the cell of Roger Deadman, and they brought him down to the prison office. This was the poor man that was convicted of manslaughter for 18 years for the murder of his wife, uh, Lucille Deadman. Roger, at that point, was informed that the new evidence had surfaced in his wife's murder that will eventually exonerate him. Roger was completely overwhelmed, and he just wept with joy, as anyone would be. In his mind, you know, his wife's dead. He's away from his stepchildren and his new newborn son. He never remembered this. He didn't confess, yet he got railroaded into this 18-year sentence. What a relief that must have been for Roger. Absolutely. Now, he had tried. He had to be retried in order to clear his record. But Roger Deadman was released the following day on bond. And we we kind of bounce this back and forth, but we thought about how polite the court officials and the police mm. must have been. These folks that said, yes, yeah, he confessed. Yeah, I'll testify that he confessed. He, all three of us heard him when he had never actually confessed in the first place. Like, Sir, anything you need. Um have yeah. the best seat in the house, and uh, you know, bring you, bring you something, and just trying to probably really lay it on thick, right? Realizing they'd put somebody away <laughs> for eighteen years, and I know that this—it always sounds crazy, but I'm one of those people. One of my fears is getting put away in prison for something I didn't do, and it sounds like a crazy fear, but it's not unrealistic, especially it's- in this, in this. In this uh, instance where this guy completely did everything right, but I think simply just by being a person who people witness that they got into an argument and being the husband, the spouse, is the first one they look at and they didn't have anything. I think they got tunnel vision. and Right. Well, uh, meanwhile, while Roger Deadman, he's getting all this good news, uh, Leroy Martin, he continues to exhibit just bizarre behavior and an irrational behavior pattern to police. Uh, he would confess to the murders, and he would give them information and cooperate. Then he'd turn around and say he didn't do it. Uh, but one thing did remain constant with Leroy Martin, and it said that he felt like he was a, quote, dual person. He even stated that he could remember standing on a hill and looking down at himself committing these murders. He seemed to have like an out-of-body experience. And Daisy Martin, Leroy's mother, she later testified that her son would often say growing up that he felt like he was two people. So this this may have very well been a, a case of schizophrenia or... Multiple personality disorder. Multiple personality disorder. Bipolar, that could be... I don't know if it would work in that sense, but... Something's going on. I think there certainly almost would have to be, A, because you're deranged enough to take somebody's life, but at the same time, 
you live this life where you're a father and a husband and a conscientious worker, yet also in your spare time, sometimes you just snap and you go and kidnap, rape women and strangle them. To death. I mean, that would be the perfect epitome of him living <clears throat> these two personalities that he claims to have. The one where he's, you know, a good worker, good provider, husband, father, person in the community. And then you've got this other person who's, you know, snatching up women off the street and killing them in a brutal way. And then also on top of that, calling into the news, you know, paper to say, you know, to let take credit for it and I mean, there's just – I mean, that does – it sounds like two different people working there. And that almost makes me switch gears because we, we talked about, yeah, this caller, the, the guy that was calling Bill Gibbons, he wanted credit for his body count. But maybe it was the good Leroy Martin that was like, hey, I've got to do something to get caught. I don't really want to get caught and have to pay for this, but – God, I, I've got to give this guy some solace that's sitting in a jail cell for 18 years. Maybe that, that that's far-fetched, but maybe I that's mean, just a theory. Anything's possible. Now, Cherokee County De- Deputy Ernest Harrington, uh, he attested full force to the change that could come over Leroy Martin and transform him into a killer because – Police had Leroy Martin in a room, and they were they were speaking with him. He was able to give them some information, and finally they said, "Show us how you placed your belt," which ended up being the murder weapon. Show us how you placed your belt around the neck necks of your victims. So this Ernest Harrington, he volunteered to play the victim. So in a room full of police officers, uh, they let. Leroy Martin put this belt around the neck of Deputy Ernest Harrington, and it took that full room of police officers to physically separate the two and pull Martin off of Deputy Harrington. And Harrington said that he, that Leroy Martin just had this crazed look in his eyes. And after the two were separated and they finally got Harrington free from Leroy Martin's clutches, Martin, he sat in the corner. He, he collapsed on the floor and just started weeping like a baby. So very, very odd behavior. Of course, some kind of mental defect there with Leroy Martin, the Gaffney Strangler. Well, on September, 6, September 1968, uh, Martin's trial started, and the prosecution tries him first for the murders of Opal Diane Buxton and Annie Lucille Dedman. Martin pled guilty and received two consecutive life sentences. Now, there was a controversy with the sentence um, in this actual case because the foreman, he came out and read what the jury had decided on, and he said the jury found the defendant guilty with a recommendation of leniency. So that meant no death penalty. After the trial, other jurors collaborated with the media, and they said, hey, we went in that room and we were all dead set on giving him the death penalty. I don't know if this jury foreman, if he went into business on his own, if he misspoke, or if he just didn't take into consideration what we had decided on unanimously. Or maybe he didn't like their decision and said, well, we're just going to go with what – I'm just going to read off what I would rather see happen. Right, and he, he went rogue and said that the jury – they asked for um, len- recommended leniency when that wasn't the case at all. Um, now, 
while this trial was going on, actually between the trials for the first two murders and the second two, uh, Roger Deadman, uh, he was now out of prison, and he decided, decided to file a pretty healthy civil lawsuit against the Sheriff's Department of Cherokee County and also the officers who testified uh, that he had confessed when indeed he hadn't. Rightfully so. Yeah, and because Roger got out, his wife's dead. Like we said, his children were scattered all over the place with relatives. Didn't have a dime to his name. So I, I hope they took care of Roger Deadman there. Now, on May 20th, 1969, Leroy Martin, he was set to go to trial for the murders of Nancy Christine Reinhardt and Nancy Carol Paris, but he waived his right to trial. Uh, Leroy Martin was again given two consecutive life sentences, so this means four at this point. But the kicker is, even though Leroy Martin had four life sentences back to back to back to back, he still technically was eligible for parole. That's crazy. So, Like they're going to give him the option to get out as if he wouldn't do this again. Right. <laughs> and it just – that blows my mind. But a life sentence, it's not – as we know, it's not for the rest of your life. Uh, they'll give um, that. Just blows my mind that that would even be feasible for someone this atrocious with these back to back to back to back life sentences would ever get a chance at parole. But that's that's the rules. Uh, that's the way the law is written, and it seems unfair in cases like this. But in others, they may not be. Well, and if you look at it, most people would think they'll come up for they could come up for parole and they'll get denied and they're not worried about it. And there is a very unlikely chance that he would have gotten out, but there's still a chance. Right. Like and even so that's the thing is all it takes is one or two people, I don't even know how many are on a parole board to, you know, decide that they're they're good to go and they can go out and, you know, out back out in society and then he's out. Yeah, right. And even going back to last week, Susan Smith, mm -hmm. uh, we talked about her and the murder of her two children in Union County. And she comes up for parole in two years. Mm -hmm. And she'll probably get denied, but you don't know. That's yeah, the it's thing. that unknown and unsettling unsettling there's, there's thing. Still, there's there. always the possibility, which makes it, you know, just crazy to think about. Well, Leroy Martin, he does get sentenced to prison, uh, his four consecutive life sentences. And once in prison, uh, Martin, he wrote Bill Gibbons a letter. And he just won't leave that guy alone, will he? <laughs> no, this poor Bill Gibbons, he's like, dude, just leave me the hell alone. Lose my number. Lose my address. Come on, man. It's over. Forget about me. But uh, Martin did. He actually wrote a, penned a pretty nice apology letter to Bill Gibbons, uh, telling him he was sorry for putting him or his family through any trouble, which I guess that was the least he could do at that point. And uh, the warden at the prison where Martin was kept, he said um, Martin was kept in solitary confinement at first, but then after no disciplinary problems, he was transferred over to general population. And he was really descri described as a loner in prison um, until he ran into a little bit of trouble. I'd say a whole lot of trouble. On June 1st, 1972, uh, that's when another inmate, Kenneth Marshall Rumsey, uh, he had overheard Martin uh, talking about 
how he was eligible for parole after all he did and really bragging about his crimes. And Martin made the statement that the day he got out of prison, he couldn't wait to go rape again. Well, Kenneth Marshall Rumsey had a problem with that, and he stabs Leroy Martin in the back and then several times in his chest, um, upwards of 20 to 25 times, uh, killing uh, Leroy Martin, the Gaffney Strangler, dead as hell in his own jail cell. So Rumsey, uh, he was serving a life sentence, and um, he let the judge know when he went in front of him for Martin's murder that Martin was bragging that he'd be paroled in 20 years and get out and rape again. So Rumsey, who already had a life sentence, he got another 20 years, and he really didn't care. And He didn't have anything uh, to lose at that point. It's like, just, just going to tack on more time. I'm not going anywhere. He certainly didn't. And... Um, that's going to be that's going to be the end of this tale, the end of Leroy Martin, the Gaffney Strangler's life, a wild story with false imprisonment, um, a newspaper editor involved, and the media used probably the first time the media was really used as a pawn by some of these serial killers. Yeah, and um, and then also the media works worked real well in this case with law enforcement. They were the ones who actually took a lot of the pictures at the crime scenes because these this um, police department didn't have a camera, so they were able to use that information. They were taking pictures. They only gave the information that the police told them to use, and it was a, a rare time where police and media were able to work hand in hand. It's not really a relationship that you would see now, right? But it was at the time. The police used the looked at the media as like a good resource as opposed to an enemy. <laughs> um, but it was uh, good to see the community come together with a common goal yes. to get this person off the street and do what they can to protect their citizens from this person who was obviously not going to stop unless he was stopped. Right, and at the end, I think he had he wanted to be caught. Obviously, that's why he started giving clues or God knows how long this would have went on I mean, until he was caught. I mean, that would have or he would or, have been incarcerated or he would have died or how many more victims he could have racked up if, you know, if Gracie Buxton hadn't have seen him or if he hadn't have contacted Bill Gibbons. All those what ifs that really that really bothers you. That gives you some heartburn there. But uh Luckily for the entire world, the Gaffney Strangler, he did meet his demise in prison, no longer able to do this to people. Uh, again, this was a, a case that was requested by you, the listeners. Uh, we had several folks ask for this one. Uh, we had Gene Knight, uh, Brenda Dawkins, uh, Thomas Miller. Several people were really anxious to hear this about the Gaffney Strangler. We hope we were able to do it justice for you. If you enjoyed the show and you're listening on Apple iTunes, go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Uh, Give us a five-star review and write us a little something in the comments about what you liked about the show, what you had for dinner tonight, or what your pet's names are. That's always a favorite one. Yep, that's my favorite. Yes, and be sure to follow us on social media. You'll see this in the show notes at Carolina Crimes Podcast. That's on Facebook. And also on Twitter at SC Crimes with an S, SC Crimes Pod. 
Uh, you can also email us with any show suggestions that you may have at carolinacrimespod at gmail.com. And we've gotten a lot of great feedback from folks. We really appreciate you listening and hope you're enjoying the show. Thank you so much. Uh, Danielle, any final words? Um, like, again, if you have any suggestions, uh, recommendations, to send those to us because it's really it's really appreciated on my end. I know it is on Matt's is, um, because when it comes to cases, especially like with the Gaffney Strangler, I didn't know about this one. You know, it happened so long ago. Um, I wasn't even close to being alive at that point. So it, it's it's interesting. And this is, and you know, by you putting these things out and these giving us these cases, it's um, it's stuff that we can, it can bring, you know, we can, we can learn about it. And I, I'm interested in learning about these cases. And so just, yeah, keep on with those recommendations. All right. And next week we've got a doozy on our hands where we're going to go from the Midlands of South Carolina, all the way to the halls of the Ivy League, all the way to to Cambridge, Massachusetts as well, and back and forth here, but a very odd and interesting tale next week here on Carolina Crimes. Thank you so much for listening, and we look forward to bringing you a new case next week.